A quick explanation of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. We'll keep this story as simple as possible, avoiding some of the nuances, although the Septuagint is actually a fascinating and rather complicated story. In broad strokes, we need to begin with the composition of the Hebrew Bible. At some point between, let's say, the 13th century, the putative date of Moses, and more likely the 8th or 7th or 6th century, the Hebrew Bible begins to be composed. And so we get books like Genesis. In the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. In Hebrew, Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim ba'et ha-aretz. That's what it'll look like if you buy yourself a Hebrew Bible. But Hebrew is originally written without vowel pointing. So that's an entirely consonantal text. And the little dots in line two are the vowels which were added at a later date to clarify uh, how to vocalize the text, how to pronounce it. That will become an important part of the story in a little bit. So at some point, the Hebrew Bible is composed, begins to be composed in, in bits, bit, book by book. And of course, it gets copied. Scrolls get copied. And then copies are made from those copies. Now, the Hebrew scribes showed a remarkable degree of care in, in copying the Hebrew text. And from whatever time these first books are written, put here the 10th century just as an arbitrary date, perhaps more likely the 8th or whenever, a long, long time ago, the Hebrew Bible gets composed. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest copies we had of the Hebrew text were medieval copies. What was remarkable is that when the scrolls were discovered in 1947, to a great degree, the texts in the scrolls, a thousand years older than the previously held copies, were often letter for letter the same as what we had in the 12th century texts, the medieval texts. So on the whole, although a text is copied from a text and so on, and we all know that errors can creep in, on the whole, the text of the Hebrew Bible was carried out with great care. And we have something, in most cases, pretty close to what was written a really long time ago, which is a remarkable feat. We're not talking about Hebrew text criticism, so we will keep the story moving forward. Why do we get a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and when? Well, the next story is Alexander the Great conquering the entire Near East from Macedonia in the center of your map, eastward through Asia Minor, all the way through Iran, into India, and south through Palestine and Egypt. And the important thing for our story is that that meant Greek became the lingua franca of Alexander's empire. So Jews, even some in Palestine, in Israel, began to use Greek. And in Egypt, where there was a large Jewish population, Jews spoke almost entirely Greek. And that means that while Hebrew Bibles were being copied, in the third century, the Hebrew was translated into Greek. According to the legend, the oldest version of which is in a book called the Letter of Aristeas, the emperor uh, of Egypt wanted to build his library at Alexandria, the greatest library in the ancient world. And he said, I heard the Hebrews have a really important book. Let's get a copy. Let's get a translation made. So they sent to Palestine and had 72 wise men come down, first in all sorts of wisdom, and in the more expanded version of the legend, 
these translators were put in separate cells. They each took the Hebrew scrolls and made their translation. And on the same day, they emerged from their separate cells. They hadn't been allowed any communication with each other. And all 70 or 72 translations were exactly the same, word for word, which showed that God had supervened over this translation, had approved of it, and had ensured that it was made with, essentially, a form of inspiration. The symbol for the Septuagint, which you'll see most often, is LXX, that is, the Roman numeral for 70, because of the legend of there being 70 translators, or again, sometimes in some versions, 72 translators. So, we now have Hebrew copies being made and Greek copies being made. So at the same time that there's Hebrew copies, there are Greek copies. What kind of care was shown with the Greek copies? Now we need to introduce a bit of complexity to the story. We need to say a bit about Hebrew, the Hebrew language. So we'll go back to the fact that Hebrew is written without vowels. And we'll put up two Hebrew words. And I'll show you why in a little bit why I picked these two Hebrew words. This is the verb yirshu, it means to possess. And this is the verb yidrashu, it means to pursue. You can see that those two words look quite similar. They differ only in a single consonant, and the consonant is shaped quite similarly, in fact, all the more so in ancient Hebrew handwriting. So the word on the left means possess, the word on the right means seek. All right. This is, we're gonna, we're gonna focus on a quotation from the book of Amos. So let's imagine originally in the book of Amos, in the eighth century BC, Amos writes, Yershu, they will possess. And that gets copied into some Hebrew manuscripts as Yershu. But it gets copied into other Hebrew manuscripts accidentally as Yidrashu. Those similar yellow letters get confused. When the Septuagint gets translated, what version did it use? Well, if it used one of these Hebrew texts which said Yidrashu, or even if the translator simply misread Hebrew which said Yirshu, he's going to have in Greek the word seek in this quotation from Amos. And that's going to get passed on through copies of the Greek. At the same time, Greek translators despite the pious legend that they all sat down and did this at once, and the books came out exactly the same, occasionally corrections are made to the Greek, and someone says, you know, I want to have another look at the Hebrew. So periodically, someone will have another go at the book of Amos, and will use a Hebrew manuscript that has Yershu, possess. So you have Greek manuscripts that say possess and that say seek, and you have Hebrew manuscripts that say possess and that say seek. By the first century, there are a variety of readings in Hebrew as well as in Greek. There's multiple manuscripts in different places. Judaism is a trilingual community. They're using Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. For the most part, we're going to leave Aramaic out of this story because it just complicates things too much. So the question then is in the first century, when the New Testament is being written, when Christianity is having its, its origins, 
and you have Christian leaders citing scripture, what was in their Bible? When James steps up at the apostolic conference in Acts 15, and he settles the controversial issue of including the Gentiles in the people of God, and he cites this passage from Amos, is he reading a Hebrew Bible or a Aramaic Bible or a Greek Bible? And if he's reading a Hebrew Bible, does it say possess or seek? Let me just illustrate why I've chosen this example by looking at James's quotation. James settles the question of what to do with the Gentiles by quoting Amos 9.11. In the Hebrew, the passage reads as follows. God says, in the end times, I will raise up the booth of David, which has fallen. Why will I restore Israel's fate? Why will I raise up the house of David? So that the house of David, the Israelites, may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles. That is, God promises, I'm going to restore Israel's fate so that they take over the world. They take over Edom, their old enemy, and they possess the Gentiles. Well, that doesn't look like a very promising quotation for James to use to settle the question of, can Gentiles be part of the people? But that's not the version James quotes. James stands up and says, brethren, what the Holy Spirit is doing agrees with the prophecy. As Amos said, and here's what James says in Acts 15. Amos told us, I will rebuild the booth of David, which has fallen, in order that all the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. Well, that's beautiful. And that sounds like Amos was predicting there would come a time when all of mankind would seek the Lord, even the Gentiles. But as you can see, that's not what the Hebrew text, as we have it, of Amos says. So how did James get the rest of mankind and seek instead of the remnant of Edom and possess? Well, the word possess and the word seek are very similar in Hebrew, Yershu and Yidrishu. And the remnant of Edom and the rest of mankind are identical in a consonantal text. The only way those would look different is if you add the vowel points and make Edom different from Adam. Edom is Edom and Adam is mankind. So you can see that something as ostensibly dry as textual criticism and how there came to be a Greek Septuagint, a translation of the Hebrew, and multiple Hebrew versions, multiple Greek versions, could have an impact on something as seminal as should the Gentiles be included in the people of God. We can illustrate the challenge of any translation, even when it's a good translation, by taking the example of the Hebrew word for law, namely Torah. The Greek renders the Hebrew word Torah quite sensibly with the Greek word namos. Now Torah basically means law and namos in Greek basically means law. So there's not a mistake or any sort of problem in the translation. There's nothing tendentious about that. But as is the case with any translation, and if you've worked with translations at all, you will be familiar with this issue, every word has a semantic range. So Torah can also mean instruction, or it can mean commandment, or it can mean law, as in like law for a whole community. Namas also has a semantic range, and the semantic range overlaps with that of Torah. 
They both mean commandment or law. But namas also means things in Greek that Torah doesn't mean in Hebrew. Namas can mean a principle in Greek. Namas also can mean custom. And beyond just the question of semantic range, anytime you translate, the destination language, the target language, has its own patterns and history. So when you translate Torah into as namas, you put it into a language where there was a long history of talking about namas. And therefore, it is possible, and the proposal has been put forward, that there was a subtle shift in theology here, where the Bible, instead of being full of God's instruction to Moses, becomes a story about God's law for the Israelites. Ah, did something change there? And is that what led to a different approach to God's law with Greek-speaking Jews? I don't think that's a particularly plausible hypothesis, but you can see the issue that's at stake. No two words in two different languages will have the same semantic range. To give a couple different types of translation issues, there is some evidence, although really quite little, that Hellenistic uh, instincts and priorities influenced the Septuagintal translator's choice of terms. Let's take a case where we have uh, a sort of jarring expression, like in Psalm 18, my God is a rock. We all know what the psalmist meant. He means something like God is a, a firm and steady foundation. But for a Greek translator, let's say in the second century, in a world where Jews have become accustomed to mock pagans for the fact that they do in fact build temples around rocks and call them gods, it would be quite unpleasant to put in one's own holy writ, my God is a rock. So you avoid the scandal by saying, and as the Septuagint has it, my God is a firm foundation. Quite faithful to the intent, and this is what gets called in contemporary translation discussions, dynamic equivalent. Firm foundation is not what the word rock means, but the idea of the whole expression in Hebrew is conveyed accurately enough by the whole expression in Greek. So there are some places where Hellenistic thought, which objected to the notion, uh, philosophical schools would have objected to the notion of comparing a god to a rock, where, where that may have influenced the translator's choice of terms. Likewise, the translators at times may have chosen to avoid mythological overtones. So Genesis says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were comely. The Septuagint avoids a mythological idea of God propagating children and says the angels of God did this. That's not so much a translation as an interpretation. After all, it's not entirely clear who the sons of God are in Genesis 6. We can go on to speak of a different type of uh, translational issue where quite a lot was theologically at stake. We can give a couple other illustrations of ways in which the Septuagint made renderings of the Hebrew which were not exactly inaccurate, but which were uh, not an obvious translation of the, of the Hebrew, and which were theologically significant in early Christianity. So one of the most famous ones is the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, where Isaiah predicts that the present political crisis facing Israel would be solved and God would give a sign. The sign would be a young woman would have a child, the child would be named Emmanuel, and before this child is old enough to know good from bad, the problem will be solved. In other words, within the next three or four years, the solution will be, will, will be taken care of. 
That's the sign. The Hebrew word for young woman is alma. It does not mean a young woman who has not been married or is a virgin. It just means a young woman, some specific young woman. But the Septuagint rendered alma parthenos, and that word does mean virgin. Therefore, it sounds like a prophecy about a virgin birth. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son. And that's exactly, of course, how the New Testament and the early Christians took this prophecy. Matthew quotes it and says, Jesus was born of Mary, who was a virgin. This was to fulfill the prophecy. Well, you can imagine that when Christians parade this prophetic fulfillment, there are going to be Jews who say, wait a minute, that's not what it really said in Hebrew. And sure enough, we not only know from the dialogue of Justin Martyr with Trypho, that Trypho the Jew said, that's a bad translation. But in, in the second century, a Jewish scholar named Aquila made a fresh translation of the Septuagint. And he said, look, we've got to make this more literal. And he said, Parthenos is not the right way to render Alma. Nianus, we need just a word that represents young woman. And there's Aquila's virgin, vir version. The Lord will give you a sign, a young woman will be with child. And Aquila goes through the entire Bible and renders it sort of letter for letter, hyper-literalistically. Uh, and that's another story. It's quite an interesting translation. But we'll focus here on a couple other instances where there are translation issues that became theologically relevant. I'll give two more. Psalm 40. In the Hebrew, the psalmist says, God, you don't desire sacrifice and offering, but you have given me an open ear. That is, you've, you've given me an ear to hear you, God. What you want is obedience on my part. And I thank you, God, for opening my ear. Something like that is the message. For complicated reasons, the Septuagint ends up with a text that says, sacrifice and offerings you do not desire, but you have prepared for me a body. Now, that obviously is not at all what the Hebrew says. And in this case, the book of Hebrews takes the psalm as what Christ said when Christ entered the world. That is, Hebrews takes this mistranslation, makes it the words of Christ, and applies it to the Incarnation. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but, God, you have prepared for me a body. There's a case where uh, an accidental mistranslation led to kind of a major theological idea for the author of the book of the Hebrews. Namely, it refers to the Incarnation. We could do this all day. I'll just do one more. Um, Psalm 116 in the Hebrew. The psalmist says, I remained faithful even when I said, I am greatly afflicted. That is, I did a little bit of whinging. I said I'm greatly afflicted, but I remained faithful when I said that. All right, that makes sense. The Greek is a tad different. It says, I believed. That's kind of like I remained faithful. And instead of saying, even when I said and going on with the quotation, it punctuates it differently. It says, I believed, therefore I spoke. Well, that's not a terrible translation, but... Paul will then quote this passage from the psalm 
in the Septuagintal form as being some sort of lesson about faith and speech. And so Paul says, we have the same spirit of belief as scripture says, I believe, therefore I spoke. So we believe and we speak. Well, none of Paul's point there, and I'm not entirely sure what Paul's point is, none of it would have gotten off the ground with the Hebrew version. I remain faithful even when I said I'm greatly afflicted. We could do this all day. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that the Septuagint is wildly different than the Hebrew in each and every case. On the whole, for great stretches, the Septuagint would read like a fairly straightforward translation of the Hebrew. But there are a good number of passages that are different, and there are chapters that are in different orders. There are Psalms that are divided differently. And occasionally, the Septuagint didn't know what the Hebrew said, or it made some theological adjustments, and those ended up feeding into the Greek Old Testament that early Christianity used as the soil out of which Christian theology grew. I mentioned that there were other efforts to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek by Jews who for one reason or another were unsatisfied with the Septuagint as a translation. We can give a representative rabbinic comment on their outlook on the Septuagint. The day the law was translated into Greek was as hard for Israel as the day they made the golden calf, for Torah could not be translated in all its demands. That sounds like a, uh, a prohibition of any sort of translation, but in fact, there are other comments. One thing to learn about rabbinic uh, thought is that for every comment, you can find its opposite. In another passage in the Jerusalem Talmud, they say that Greek is the one language into which the law can be translated. All the others are rubbish. But on the whole, there was a sense of dissatisfaction with the Septuagint, especially once Christians started using it to proof text things to prove that Christ was promised in the Old Testament. So we've already mentioned that Aquila made an extremely sort of absurdly literal translation. There are also revisions by someone called Theodotion and by someone called Symmachus. We'll find throughout the semester all these people mentioned as uh, usually viewed by Christians as inferior translations because they don't keep all the goodies of the Septuagint. Someone who took them serious as translations and someone who took text criticism very seriously is the great third century biblical scholar and theologian Origen. Origen said, wait, this is too many different things to deal with. We need to get to the bottom of this and establish once and for all accurately the text of the Septuagint. So Origen made what is called the hexapla, six columns. He copied out, the, he and a team copied out the entire Old Testament in six, sometimes eight columns when they had more Greek translations. And the first column was the Hebrew text in Hebrew letters. The second column was a transcription, sort of to sound it out for someone who couldn't read Hebrew. It's quite a mystery. Who, whom was that for? Uh, then there was Aquila's version, then there was Theodotion's, then Symmachus's, then the Septuagint, and he used critical marks to say what parts of the Septuagint looked like additions or subtractions from what he saw in the Hebrew. The goal of this was to establish a reliable text. And I mention this as just an instance of the fact that although we will speak broadly at times of pre-critical biblical scholarship, that's the way, that's the current 
popular way to speak about patristic and ancient Jewish readings of scripture as pre-critical. They weren't lacking in critical sophistication or precision. They were aware of differences. They were aware of chronological problems. They were aware of uh, different tense systems in Hebrew and Greek and so on and so forth. And they attended to these. They just attended to them with a different set of lenses than we tend to in the past 250 years of modern critical biblical scholarship. And this takes us from a theological issue, uh, from a translation issue, to a theological issue. Namely, between the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint, what's the authority for early Christianity? This was a question they had to wrestle with, as they were mostly Greek-speaking. They were naturally inclined to use the Septuagint, but when they were entered into debate with Jews, Jews increasingly drove them to the Hebrew, or made new translations of the Hebrew, like Aquila, and the other Jews did the same thing, and said, you guys are basing your theology and your prophecies and so on on bad translations. Now, if we ask the question, what's going to be authoritative for the church? Obviously, the Hebrew's got to be authoritative at some level, right? I mean, after all, that's the original language. Early Christians know that. They're aware of that. And surely, if God gave this text to God's people, that remains an authoritative text. Now, it gets complicated, of course, because Christians increasingly accept the authority of the New Testament. That is, the letters of Paul and the Gospels and Acts. Okay, so we're going to use the Hebrew Bible and we're going to use the New Testament. But of course, the problem is the New Testament uses the Septuagint. And it uses the Septuagint more than it uses the Hebrew Bible. That is, there are clearly quotations that agree with the Septuagint against what the Hebrew says. And as Christians increasingly recognize that the Septuagint does not represent a good translation, are they going to put a check mark by the Septuagint? Is it authoritative? Well, if the apostles used it, then shouldn't Christians use it? So long as Christians were convinced that the Septuagint was an inspired and perfect rendering of the Hebrew, there was hardly anything to address. But when they were increasingly forced to face the fact that the Septuagint wasn't, in every case, an accurate rendering, it became more difficult. We can see the issue come to a head in the 4th century, when Jerome sets out to revise the Latin translations. That is, Jerome creates what we now have as the Vulgate. Jerome had to decide, when revising the Latin, which had been based on the Septuagint, he had to decide whether to make his revision based on the Septuagint. Jerome was one of the few people in the 4th century, one of the few Christians, who could read Hebrew. He had gone to Palestine to learn it. He'd studied with rabbis there. He concluded that he had to make a fresh Latin translation from the Hebrew, because the Septuagint was simply unreliable in too many points. In fact, in the Psalms, he decides to make two translations because he can't reconcile the Hebrew and the Greek. So in the Vulgate, there is a Latin of the Hebrew and a Latin of the Greek in the case of the Psalter. This was deeply troubling to other Christians. In fact, Augustine says there were riots in his churches when Jerome's new translation was made. Augustine takes the somewhat surprising attitude that even if the Septuagint renders something inaccurately, 
it's still an authoritative word from God. So Augustine in The City of God addresses the problem that the book of Jonah has different numbering. At one point it says in three days something will happen, and at another point it says in 40 days. One's the Hebrew, one's the Greek. Augustine says, what should we do? Jettison the Greek because it's a bad translation? He says, let's not be too hasty to do that. Perhaps God spoke twice, and both are true. Elsewhere, Augustine basically takes the view that the Septuagint has value not because of its accuracy as a translation, but because it is a freshly inspired word from God. That is, God spoke twice to the people of Israel through the Hebrew, and a second time to the inspired translation of the Septuagint. This remains an issue in some ways in Christianity because the Greek Orthodox Church uses the Septuagint as authoritative. And from time to time, there is a call that the rest of Christendom should also recognize the Septuagint's authority. Just recently, a book's been published and created a bit of a stir called When God Spoke Greek, restating this case. We don't need to solve this question, but you need to be aware of it because most of early Christianity will do its theological reflection on the text of the Septuagint, which again, just to summarize, is on the whole a pretty good go at translating the, Septu uh, translating the Hebrew, but at some key points seems to have rendered a different Hebrew text than we currently have, or seems to have made certain mistakes. That will be the basis for most Christian reflection throughout the New Testament and throughout the patristic period.